All right, good morning. We're going to, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12 this morning. Uh, as we come into this text, we're, uh, we're dealing with a text that, uh, that kind of concludes a doctrinal section, verses 9 and 10, and it introduces a more pastoral section that's going to, once we get to uh, verse 13 next, next week and following, through, I think it's 312, it's, it's a series of imperatives. And, and in fact, verse 11, or 11 and 12 are not given as a direct imperative. It's what they call an indirect imperative, but it, it, is, it is an order. <laughs> so it's not, it's not, this is optional. It is an order. So he moves into this more pastoral section. And what he's, and, and, and the way, way I kind of, I saw this or kind of put this together is, is he, is he first of all talks about our position as believers, or perhaps some some commentators put it as our privilege, they, or some of them do it as both. They put privilege slash posi- uh, position, and, and I think that's what the first two, two verses talk about: is who we are in Christ, and that's that's our position. It's also a privileged position, but with privilege it becomes responsibility, and that's what follows: is the responsibility then uh, that comes with that. And as, as I was thinking about that, I, I kind of looked and found a couple of quotes from a, a couple of people you may recognize. Uh, one of them was uh, Dr. David Jeremiah, who, uh, speaking of the gospel, said, Share the gospel. According to the Bible, it is every believer's privilege and responsibility to share the gospel. If we understand what lies ahead for those who do not know Christ, there will be a sense of urgency in our witness. And uh, Doctor and, and Charles Haddon Spurgeon, in a more general uh, way of looking at the Christian life, said, "Oh, let us prove our gratitude by our devotion, and live as those who have claimed a privilege, are willing to take the responsibility connected with it." And I think that's uh, that's what Peter is is uh, telling us here in this verse. Uh, you have a privileged position, and you have a responsibility to live up to it. And, and basically what he is coming off of is he's, he is uh, the theme that has run through chapter 1 and chapter 2, be ye holy for I am holy. He's going to now, he's going to now illustrate in very practical terms what a holy life looks like. That's 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 what he's that's what he's going to be doing as we come as we come to the text this morning. So uh, before we get uh, into it, uh, do we have any prayer requests this morning? Um, Ava, the little lady that usually sits here, I got a message from her. She's healing well, but her blood pressure has gotten kind of out of control, and they're working with that. And they suspect she has some heart damage, so she's getting a, what do you call that thing? No, not yet. They haven't gone that far. No, I'll, I'll think of it in a minute. It's, 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 it's that big test that's something cardiogram. But anyway, anyway, echocardiogram. Thank you. Anyway, uh, uh, they're scheduling one of those. So at any, any, at any rate, she wanted me to, uh, to lift that request. So um, there's no other. Michael, would you open this this morning?
we just wanting to trust pay you and follow in your ways and pray that I uh, be with Alba, that you help her to recover and uh, that uh, she may just have godly attitude and uh, just be a testimony unto the doctors that, and uh, pray that uh, glorify your name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to look. Uh, we're going to look first of all at uh, at uh, uh, at the idea that we are a a chosen royal holy possession. That's uh, those are the terms that are going to be used as we look at verses nine and, and verse ten. And he, he begins by saying, he, Peter says to us, he says, "But you are a chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may, may proclaim the excellencies of Him who has called you out of darkness into His marvelous light." For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And that we'll, we'll stop there and, and look at this. He, he begins by saying, but you are. He's, he's contrasting verse 8, where he talked about those people, those unbelievers who, who live their life stumbling over the chief cornerstone and crashing headlong into the bedrock, literally, is what he is saying when he speaks of, of, of stones and rock in that, in that text. He says, Who's, who basically are destined to a godless eternity. He says, in contrast to them, but you. You who have put your faith in Jesus Christ. That's, that's ultimately what he's saying here. He says, those, those of you who have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are, as a result of that, you are, in contrast to the non-believer, you are, he says, first of all, a chosen family. That's the first thing he says. Now, various, uh, various, uh, various texts put a different uh, put a different word after chosen, but uh, but that's they all have the same idea. They denote a relationship. Uh, Peter is coming off of of an Old Testament passage in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy seven, six, and nine, where where God speaks to Israel as His chosen family, His chosen people, and that's where He's that's where He's coming off of when He when He uh, when He brings us this. Uh, the LVS obviously LLSV, I mean, obviously says family. I never get all the initials right. I just, just Latter-day Saints. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. No, um, the NASB and the EVS both. Let's say race, and uh, KJV says uh, um, a generation. The NIV says people. I, I, family and race are probably the two best because they they exemplify the relationship uh, that is being talked of here. Uh, it's it's a there's a there's a familiarity with one another. We we are family. That's the idea here. We came from the same stock as it were. That's the idea. I think uh, in today's modern terms if we sent the little test deal in our DNA would come back the same. That's that's the idea uh, that he that he's expressing in this idea. Sometimes this word is also just to kind of help kind of see that this word is sometimes translated as as is kind or nation or country or kindred, stock, offspring and tribe. The same Greek word is used in in in, in all uh, in all of those ways, and in every one of them it denotes some kind of a family relationship. That's that's the idea. Now, the first thing he wants you to know is we're all related. 
and we're related by the fact that we have been chosen. Uh, that's where the relationship is. It's not a physical relationship. It's a spiritual relationship. He says you were chosen. It's the same word that he used in, in 1-1. It's the same word that he used in 2-4 and in 2-6. And, and, it's, and it's the word that translates elect. Uh, it's the same, same word. It runs throughout uh, the New Testament uh, where it speaks of God's sovereign choice. Uh, God who in eternity past chose you specifically. He didn't do it based on any merit. He, bit, he did it according to his good pleasure. That's, that's, that's the, the sum total of it. He says, you're elect. That's the idea. You're an elect family. We are made up. We are all interrelated together because God chose us. That's why. Uh, the, the relationship that we have as believers is based on the fact that a sovereign God said, I pick each one of you, and I put you together in my church. That's ultimately what, the, what this is saying. Election, election is, a, is a decision of a sovereign God, and it's not based on any merit whatsoever. It's solely his choice, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It's, it's, a, it's a doctrine that exalts God because it's totally dependent upon divine grace and nothing else. It's all to His glory. It's all for His purpose. Ephesians 1, 4-7. through 7. And, and because He has set His love before the foundation of the world, it, it should drive us to thanksgiving and obedience. Uh, that's what First Peter uh, 1, 15-16 indicated. Uh, and we are to remember that election is eternal. God doesn't choose to unelect you. You're elect, period. That's that's the idea. It's a it's it's an eternal it's an eternal choice that then results in the fact that we can have peace with God because of it. As a result, as a result of it, Colossians one twenty, and it should produce in you joy and hopefulness. 1 Peter one twenty one. That's the idea here. That's who we are. That's the first thing he says. You're a chosen family, an elect race, if you have the NASB. Uh, that's, that's the idea here. He says, secondly, not only are you a chosen family, but you're also a royal priesthood. Here he's coming off of Exodus 19, uh, Exodus 19, verse, uh, verse 6. He's also going to use verse 5 in, in a later one. But here, here he's coming off of verse 6 where, where, uh, where Moses wrote, And you shall, or God speaking says through Moses, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So telling Moses to speak those words. Uh, ultimately, that's, that's the text he's coming off of in this, in this, particular, in this particular section. And, he, and he's saying, you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's the idea here. In 2.5, in 2.5, he said of us, and also as living stones you are being built up into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We've talked quite a bit about the priesthood, but the, the main idea of the priest is the priest was the one who stood between man and God, the one who offered sacrifices. He's saying, you're a royal family of priests. That's, that's, the, that's the idea here. All of you, it speaks of the priesthood of the believer. Every believer has open access to God. That's that equal open access to God, incidentally. There is no class 
amongst believers that has special privilege or gets special access. And there is no uh, putting clergy in the in the mix doesn't mean you get special access beyond someone else, nor that you have special permission to do things as in the Roman Catholic Church. You you don't need that mediator between you and God. Uh, Now we are all to work together as a family. Don't 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 miss the interdependence. But. And we all should go before God on each other's behalf. But the fact of the matter is, we all can go before God. That's the point. We are, we are a royal priesthood. Incidentally, and you'll notice he says, a royal priesthood. That's, that's the idea here. And in 2.5 he said that we were a holy priesthood. The holy priesthood says we were set apart for it. A royal priesthood says... Our place of residence, literally, because in Luke in Luke seven twenty five, this word royal is and generally it is used this way to mean a royal uh, uh, residence, a a place of a place where we would live together, if you will. And it's, the idea here is is that's who we are. That's how we that's how we hold ourselves. We we are a royal priesthood. Zechariah. <coughs> Zechariah, verse uh, chapter six, verse thirteen. He says, "Indeed, it is He who will build the temple of Yahweh, and He will bear the splendor and sit, sit and rule on the throne. This, thus, He will be a priest on His throne, and a and a council of peace will be between the two offices." And what is what Zechariah is pointing out here is in old Israel there was a king and there was a priest. Jesus is both. That's what he's pointing out here. We are a part of the royal priesthood. We we serve a royal king as priests. That's 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 what he's putting together here. We serve we serve Jesus Christ who is both who is both our king and our high priest, Hebrews 4, um, 4.15, calls Jesus uh, the high priest. He is our high priest. He's the priest we serve under. Revelation 19.16 says he's, he comes back as king of kings and lord of lords. He is both. He sits as a priest and he sits as a king, and that's whom we serve, and therefore we, we are a royal Priesthood serving under a royal king and a royal high priest is the idea here. Uh, literally, this this verse says that we are a royal household of priests. That's what it says. That's how it's phrased: a royal household of priests. That's that's the church. That that's who we are. Going on, he says, and we are a holy nation. Not only are we a chosen family, not only are, not only are we a royal priest, but we are also a holy nation. Nation is a general term that's used to, to mean people. Uh, it means a group of people, a like group of people. It speaks of an ethnic group, uh, generally, if you will, in the geopolitical sense. Um, here it's not being used that way. It's being used in a, polit- in a, in a spiritual sense. Uh, Rather than being from some country, you know, uh, um, America is not a good example because we're a whole bunch of 
ethnic groups here, uh, but uh, uh, someplace where it's all one ethnic group. We're not. That's that's not the idea here. You know, we are a big mix of 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 physical ethnic groups, but spiritually we are one ethnic group. And that's what he's saying here. We're a holy nation. A nation is generally uh, given as a as a group of people. <clears throat> as a group of people uh, that live in a certain locale and they they live by certain customs and laws and they generally, although I don't think the world's working quite this way today, uh, they generally work together for the betterment of their society. Uh, that That's the idea of a nation. That's what a nation should be. And that's what he's saying here. This is who we are. And he quali- qualifies it by saying that we are a holy nation. That is a nation that has been set apart for the service of God. That's what, he's, that's, what he's, that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about this high privileged position that brings, brings with it a responsibility that he'll talk about in the rest of the chapter and into the next chapter. He says, we're a, we're a nation of people that have been set apart to serve God. That's, 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 the, that's the idea here. He says, he says, we're a family, we're a chosen family, an elect family. Uh, we're an elect family that, that is a royal priesthood. Uh, that is, we are a household of priests under the high priest Jesus Christ. We are a, we are a holy nation. We are a nation that is then set apart for his service. That's, that's the idea here. And then finally, he says, in this list of things that, uh, that, uh, that qualify us, a people for God's own possession. Uh, a literal, or you could say it this way, a people that belong to God. Uh, this, this also comes from Exodus. I lost my little thing here. Uh, it didn't stick. Exodus 19, verse 5, in this case, where he, where he says this. He says, So now then, if indeed you will listen to my voice and keep my commandments, then you shall be my treasured possession amongst all the people, for all the earth is mine. Uh, and that's, that's where Peter is coming off of here. This is what the church has become. It's become God's possession from amongst all the earth. Uh, in other words, it it's, belongs to God. The word possession here is a word that is used to to purchase or to acquire for a price. Uh, Titus chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. Looking for the blessed hope and and, and appearing of, of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that, that he might redeem us from all lawlessness and purify for himself a people of his own possession, zealous for good works. That's what this is pointing to. We were bought with a price. We became gods by the fact that he redeemed us through the blood of Jesus Christ. Uh, this, is, this, is where he's, this is where he's moving through this. All believers who bl- belong to God, the one who redeemed us. That's what he's wanting us to see here. So he, he's talking about our position here. Our position is one of an elect, an elect family, uh, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people that literally belong to God because he bought us with his blood. That's, that's what he's saying here. That's what, he, that's, that's what he wants us to understand. That's who you are if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. 
this defines you in, in a certain sense here. A holy nation, a people that belong to God. And then he, then he gives the reason why he did all of this. But what he, what he wants from us, I suppose you could say, uh, and he says, he says this, he says, so that you might proclaim the excellency of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Here's the reason that you might proclaim him. Uh, basically, Isaiah 43, 21, he says this, the people whom I form myself will recount my praises. That's, that's the idea here. We're, we're to be a people who represent him, a people who praise him, a people who, who mark out all the greatness of the God whom we serve. Uh, we should vocalize, as one commentator said, uh, vocally proclaim God's virtues, deeds, power, glory, wisdom, grace, mercy, love, and holiness. You want all those again? <laughs> God's virtues, his deeds, power, glory, wisdom, grace, mercy, Love and holiness. That's what those are the excellencies that he's called us to proclaim. Uh, those are the things uh, that mark out the God whom we serve. And it should be seen in our conduct as a people of light. In other words, here is the uh, the metaphor that's used throughout Scripture, uh, contrasting sin with sinlessness, uh, light, God who is light, and sin which is dark and he's basically saying here you've come into the light your sins have been forgiven you have come to know the light the Lord Jesus Christ and he has brought you into that light and you are to shine that light in a dark world that's, that's, that's the idea here because uh, he called you out of that darkness uh, before you came into the light you were dark uh Paul in Ephesians talks about uh, the Gentiles being dark in their understanding. Uh, that, that kind of idea. They don't know God. They have no knowledge of Him. He's saying, you've come into the light. You have a knowledge of God. You know who God is. You have seen His light. And that light should cast away the darkness. And it did in you. And he says, as a result of that, you should proclaim the God who brought you out of that. And into his light. And then he goes on and he says in verse 10. Oh, wait a minute. I forgot a verse here. Colossians 1.13. For he rescued us from the dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. That's the idea. That's what he's, that's what he's telling us here. This is what God has done. Now, this is what he has done. This is how we became a chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, because he took us out of the dominion of darkness and brought us into the light of the kingdom of his, of his son. Verse 10, verse 10, he goes on and he says, For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You have not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is an interesting idea here, is he talks about the fact that, of course, this is true in the, in the Old Testament of how he speaks about Israel, that Israel uh, wasn't a people. He called a man, Abraham, and from Abraham he made a nation. 
they were not a nation beforehand. And he didn't pick them because they were the biggest or the best or the greatest. He picked them out of his choice, just like he did you and me. That's, that's, the, that's the idea here. But in this particular text, uh, what, what Peter is calling to mind is Hosea, chapter 1, uh, through, uh, through Hosea, really through Hosea, all the way through Hosea. Uh, but in Hosea, if you remember the story, Hosea is, uh, is, is commanded by God to take as a wife a woman of, shall we say, ill repute. And uh, he is to bear children with her. And uh, unfortunately for those children, they're given awful names. Uh, but at any rate, uh, but at any rate, the first one, the first one is named Jezreel because of the bloodshed that will be shed in, in Israel. It's a condemnation to, to Israel. Um, the second one is a daughter, and her name literally translate, literally translates, "And I am not your God." That's literally what her name translates. And then he has a son, and uh, the son's name is, and you're not my people. Uh, this was all prophetic, uh, describing, the, this, describing how God is going to treat the northern kingdom uh, because of their rebellion, because of their sin, because of their uh, treason, if you were. And basically the idea here is, um, is uh, the daughter's name has the idea of no mercy or no love. It's, I will no longer show love or mercy on the house of Israel, is what he, what he tells him in Hosea. In Hosea. And, ba- and Paul takes this, takes this passage from Hosea, Hosea chapter 1, verse 1 through 2.23, and he applies it in Romans, 9, uh, in Romans chapter 9, where... If you're familiar with the book of Romans, Romans 9, 10, and 11 tells us where Israel stands with God and where they will stand with God. It basically, it basically takes us through uh, the condition that Israel finds itself in today and the conditions that one day it will find itself. God will redeem them ultimately. Uh, but for now, they have, uh, most theologians call it, have been set in abatement. They've been set aside. They have been, uh, God hasn't disowned them, but he's not working through them, as it were, at, at this particular point. The tribulation period will correct that. But basically, when we get to the great tribulation, it, it has, it has well, there's probably more than this, but it has two grateful purposes in it. One is the outpouring of God's wrath against Christ's rejecting world. That's, that's the one. The second one, equally important, and equally uh, before the mind of God, is the redemption of Israel. Those are the two things that the tribulation is about. This is why, if you ask those who think you're going to go through the tribulation... What part does the church have in that? It doesn't fit any of those categories. It just doesn't. Uh, anyway, I've right, got a sidetrack. Any, anyhow, here, here, in, here in Romans, Paul applies this text. He applies this text to, to, uh, to Israel, and, and he applies it to, to the church as well, uh, a certain aspect of it. In, 25, in verse 25 and in verse 26, he says, as says also, as it says, as he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people my people, and her who was not beloved beloved. That's that's the prophecy, and it shall be in the place where it is said to them, "You are not my people, 
there they shall be called sons of the living God. And in verse 30, he kind of tells us how this is then applied when he says, What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness laid hold of righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. And then speaking of Israel, he says, But Israel pursued a law of righteousness and did not attain that law. That's what he's saying here. He's applying this text. He's saying, he's calling a, he's taking this text, Paul is taking this text, and he's saying this prophecy of Hosea is exactly what Peter is talking about here. That there is a people, the church, who were not a people who God will call as a people. And they, and they became a people because they laid hold of righteousness by faith. And by faith alone. That's that's the that's the picture that that uh, that Peter is painting here in the, in this verse. That's what he's saying. For once you're not a people, but now you are a people. You receive no mercy, but you have received mercy. That's that's the idea. Uh, once there was no mercy for you, but now there is. And basically, what he is saying here, and incidentally, when he says all of this, he's not indicating that. The church Peter was writing to was all Jewish. It was he's using Gentile in the in the in the meaning of non-believers. That's how he's using it. He's not using it to distinguish between sons of Abraham and the rest of the world. He's using it to distinguish between children of God and the rest of the world. That's uh, that's uh, that's the that's the context that he's saying here. So he he begins in these first four verses telling us what our position is. He tells us who we are as a church, as people, as individuals of that church, a chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. And he says that he says that he's called and he has called us together that we can proclaim his mercy, or his his greatness, his 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 mercy, if you will, but all of his his excellencies. Got on the next verse. Anyway, and he says, and, and you once weren't a people at all, but now you are. And it's all by his grace because he had mercy on us. Uh, God so loved, he had mercy and provided grace as the means by which we might be saved. And, and that's, that's the, the picture that he paints in these first verses. And then he says, and then he moves on and he says, he says, now I have an appeal that you live the life you've been called to. Ultimately, is what he's going to say next. He says, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from fresh, uh, fleshly lust which wage war against your soul by keeping your contact excellent among the Gentiles so that in the things which they slander you as evildoers they may be because of your good works as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation and there's a whole bunch of stuff here he says first of all beloved uh, those who are the object those people he just delineated as to who you are those people are the objects of God's love us the church beloved that's that's what this term that's what this term uh, comes to. He says he says, beloved, I have an appeal to make to you. He says, I urge you. The, K, the KJV says, beseech. Uh, it's a, it's the same word that's used in Romans one twelve, uh, where it's where it's to encourage or to exhort or to entreat. Uh, it's used by Peter also in chapter five, <clears throat> verse one. 
where he says, therefore I exhort, that's the same word as as urge or beseech. He says, I urge you, the elders among you, as your fellow elder, that you witness the sufferings of Jesus Christ and partakers also of the glory that is to be revealed. It's used again in chapter 5, verse 12, where he says, through Silvinus, our faithful brother, as I regarded him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and bearing witness that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Here again, it's that same word. It's, it's a, it's a word of urgency. It's a, it's a word of appeal. It's a word that, that calls us to, to something. It's, it's an urging, it's an urging to pursue a certain course of conduct. Incidentally, it's given in a kind of strange form because while it isn't a strict do this it is an imperative it's an indirect imperative it's it's saying you're called to this uh, this is really not an option for the believer's life uh, this is who a believer is to be he says i urge you therefore brothers and and he and, he, and then he goes on and he says uh, coming off of chapter 1 where where he uh, started out by calling them exiles and sojourners or aliens and strangers depending on which text you have the words all mean the same thing exile is someone who lives in a country that's not his own that's that's basically what it means uh, i've been exiled uh, to some place it spoke of it spoke of israel when when uh, uh, when the Assyrians came through, they were exiled. They were taken out of the land in which they lived. And it ultimately, primarily, it referred to Judah when Babylon came and exiled them into the Babylonian Empire. Eventually, the Persian Empire and all over it. As, as a result, uh, it, it speaks to someone who lives in a country that's not his own. And then he, he says, and sojourners, which basically is synonymous with the word alien. Uh, some texts translate it aliens and strangers, and basically they're saying aliens and aliens. But anyway, uh, um, um, the idea here is, 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 is a sojourner is someone who is just passing through. Now that's, that's the idea. This is not a permanent home. It's just the place I'm hanging my hat for a while, is, is the idea here. And he's... He's reiterating to us, uh, to, be, to the beloved, to believers, this is not home. This is not our residency. We're just temporarily setting up camp, if you would. Uh, this, is, this is not a, in military terms, this is our bivouac for the night. You know, this is, this is where we are for right now. Hebrews thirteen fourteen says, For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are searching the city which is to come. That's, that's, that's the idea here. This is not home. You know, we, need to, we need to keep that, that in mind. That's, that's what he's wanting them to say. He's, he's saying to them, Look, beloved, remember, remember who you are. Remember that you are priests in a royal household. This is not your home. This is just a place you're passing through. Uh, that you're setting up temporary residence here is is the idea. Um, keep those kind of connections somewhat loose, if you will. And, he, and then he goes on and he says, 
he's saying, this is not your home. So be, and he's going to tell them then to behave yourself since you're living in somebody else's house. It's really kind of the idea here. You know, it's like you tell your kids, you guys probably never had to hear this, but, but you're going over to somebody's house, behave yourself. <laughs> you know, that's, that's what Peter is going to tell us here. He says, so he goes on and he says, abstain from sinful passions. That's what he tells him. He says, abstain from fresh, fleshly lust. That's the, the LSV's version of these of these words. He says, you're to abstain from them. Abstain means not to take part in, to stay away from. It's a continuous action, incidentally. It means they'll all the time, always be doing this. Don't stop doing this. Don't stop not doing this, I guess would be correct, but is the idea here. Uh, but stay away from stay away from this. And what are we just stay away from? Uh, fleshly lust. That's what he says. You're, you're, you're to abstain from it. It means that we're either to have the, and incidentally, it means we have the ability to do that. God wouldn't tell you to do something he didn't give you the ability to do. He's saying to you, you have the ability to do this. Uh, he's he's going to go on and talk about the war that, that goes on here. But he's saying, you have the ability. You know, he wouldn't tell you to abstain if you couldn't. You have the ability to abstain. You have the ability to continually not be involved in these things, is, is, what, he, is what he's saying here. 1 Corinthians 10.13, there's no temptation taken you, but it's common to man. And with the temptation comes the way of escape. Uh, that's that's the same idea that is going going on here. Uh, he says you can stay away from it. You have the new life which God has given you, the new man uh, that God has given you, and He's given you the indwelling Holy Spirit. And between them, you can abstain. That's 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 the idea uh, that that he's that he's wanting you to understand. Uh, lust is a word that means a, a strong desire of any kind. Incidentally, it's a neutral word. The word lust in the Greek is a neutral word. It doesn't mean good or bad. I mean, generally in English today, we hear that word. It's always associated with some type of sensuality, sexual immorality, that kind of idea. But that really isn't what the word means. It just means a super strong desire for something like ice cream. You know, that kind of that kind of idea. In fact, in fact, it's used in it's used in Luke twenty two fifteen, where and it, there it's translated desire. Usually when it doesn't mean something bad, it's translated desire. But anyway, uh, and this, it, although sometimes it's also translated desire when it means something bad. So don't use that as a rule. Um, uh, the the what it means, whether it means something good or bad is determined by the words that 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 uh, are connected to it. This one, fleshly, is the word that tells us it's bad. But for example, in Luke uh, chapter 22, verse 15, it says of Jesus that he desired, same word, Mm -hmm. to have the communion with the, or to have the Passover meal with the apostles. Uh, It's the same word. There it's used in a good sense. Here it is not. Here, Here he lets us know that it's sinfulness that he's talking about here. He's saying we're to, and he, and, he, and he goes on to say it's a broad spectrum of sinful activities. It's not just one thing. It's a broad spectrum of them. He doesn't delineate, but Paul does. Uh, somewhere in here. In Colossians chapter 5, verse 19. 
<clears throat> he says, now the deeds of the flesh, and that's what he's talking about here, fleshly lust. So it's the same, same context. He says, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, endemies, uh, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension, fractions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's what he's talking about here. These are the things he's talking about. Uh, it's a whole litany of sinful activities. And he's basically saying, don't do it. You have the power to abstain from these things. And that's what you're to do. That's what he's calling them to do. You want to live like the chosen people that you are? Then don't be involved in these things. The people of God's own possession stay away from these things. Royal priests are not involved in these things. The holy nation isn't marked by these activities. That's that's what that's what Peter is saying to them, uh, saying to them here. Incidentally, he says they wage war against your soul. This term in Greek refers to a intense, long-term military battle. That's what it pictures. It's talking about an intense, long-term, continual military battle. I was kind of studying on this word a little bit, and it brought to mind uh, Kathy's dad in World War II was a member of the 101st Airborne. And uh, he jumped on D-Day and fought all across Germany and ultimately wound up in a place called Bastogne. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but Bastogne is the Battle of the Bulge. And it's where the 101st Airborne Light Infantry was thrown against heavy artillery. Always a good match. Uh, But at any rate, the Battle of the Bulge lasted from, I forgot now, December, December 14th, I think it was, till January 25th. It was an intense long, hard-fought battle in the middle of the Belgian winter. Well, it's actually Belgian Luxembourg and part of Germany, the whole battlefield. In that battle, uh, America lost over 19,000 men, uh, 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 47,000 plus were wounded. The Germans lost 100,000 in that battle. Five months later, the war was over because Germany was defeated. And that was the last, the last major push. Winston Churchill called it the greatest battle of the war. That's what this is talking about. Intense combat. In other words, as, as Christians, if you're doing all that you can do to abstain, you've earned your CIB. And if you know, that's a combat infantryman badge, it's the gun with a lattice around it. Uh, that's that's the idea here. Uh, that's that's the battle we're in. He doesn't he doesn't play. Peter doesn't soft soak this. He's saying this is hard. It's really hard. 
But it basically says, pick up your armor and fight, is what it's saying here. You're in a war. You're in a war. And he says, these sinful things get to the inner man and they damage him. John MacArthur had an interesting way of putting it. I, I really got a kick out of this one. He says, he said that of, of these sinful things, he says, they're an army of lustful terrorists on an internal search and destroy mission. That's, that's the picture that's being painted here. It's an internal war. And he says, we are to abstain from it by walking in the Spirit, Galatians 5.16, exercising godly discipline, 1 Corinthians 9.27. That's that's how we are to to manage our lives. Uh, We are to get up every morning and put on that armor of God that we can defend ourselves against this. We are to make sure that we are connected with the Spirit of God that, and we are not quenching His working in our lives, that we are walking with Him, uh, that we are maintaining the disciplines God has called us to, like a good soldier, in effect, is what he's saying here. Uh, James, <clears throat> excuse me, James, whoops, James chapter 1. He talks about this here. He says, he says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, because God can, cannot be tempted by evil, uh, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. The same word. And, and he says, and when that lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when the sin is fully, fully matured, it brings forth death. But he says in verse 12, before coming into that, he says, blessed is the man who preserves under trial. For once he has been approved he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. It's an internal war. It's an internal war that we are called and equipped to win. That's that's the idea. And then he goes on from there and he says and he says this. He says he goes to verse 12 and he talks about he, he talks about our godly conduct among unbelievers and he says by keeping your conduct excellent by abstaining from all this fleshly lust that does war with your soul, uh, by being that good soldier, if you will. Uh, He says, by keeping your conduct excellent among the Gentiles, so that in in the things which they slander you as an evildoer, they may, because of your good works as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. And what he's he's saying, first of all, he says excellent. This is a word that means uh, a beautiful outward form, lovely, fine, winsome, gracious, fair, uh, fair to look at. Uh, and it, it also has a word, and this is the one I really like, it can be translated noble. Um, as a royal family and as royal priest, we can, should conduct our lives with nobility. That's, that's what he's saying here. Uh, there's there's to be a, a a nobility here, keeping your conduct excellent, a noble conduct. Once again, here Gentiles means the unbelieving world. That's what he's talking about here. He says before the Gentiles, the non-Christian world, uh, you should have a a noble conduct, uh, so that and. Notice here, he makes no bones about it. They will. That's really the idea here. When they slander you. So that when they slander you, I mean, all you have to do is 
look at what's gone on in our world today, and you've seen Christianity is being defamed all over the place. Sometimes some people who claim it are doing the defaming, but nevertheless, uh, uh, we've certainly had a governor who has tried to do all kinds of things to stop the progress of the church. He's lost in court every time, kind of talks to this verse but but nevertheless he says so that when they slander you as evildoers and in this century that peter is writing in the first century it was no different basically the christian church eventually once nero became emperor and he burned rome and the fire stopped at the where the, the slums literally where the christians lived uh, and his hope was to blame the jews but he burned them out too uh, he uh, he blamed the christians and, uh, of course, people didn't believe it, but they bought it, you know, as kind of the idea. And as a result of that, uh, Christians were, were branded as rebels against the Roman government. Uh, all, all of the persecution that began from there on after the time of Nero. Uh, they were branded as, 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 as rebels. Uh, some of them looked at Christian practices and they listened to the words of the communion table and they said, well, they're cannibals. They eat flesh and drink blood. They didn't understand, but that's what they accused Christians of. They accused them of cannibalism. They took the text that talked about greeting one another with a holy kiss and said they are incestuous. They accused them of that as well. You know, those, are, those are some of the things that went on in the first century. And then because they didn't worship the Roman emperor or the Roman gods, obviously they're atheists. They're godless. That's, that's another one of the accusations that came against them. Uh, they were called subversives because the text of Scripture talks about Christ setting us free and purchasing with us as a price. So they said they're trying to uproot the Roman slavery system. And since half of Rome were slaves, uh, that would be a bad thing uh, in their view. And, of course, New Testament Christianity never did any of those things. Uh, that, but that's, that's some of the things that went on in that day, and that's what Peter is saying. When they slander you as evildoers, that, that's the idea here. <clears throat> and the point that he's making here is, the point that he's making here is evildoers is when they do all these things, and he goes on and he says that they, they may because of your good works as they observe them, the point is here, the unbelieving world watches you. They watch you. Do you walk what you claim? They're always really quick to impose certain rules and regulations on you. I had a neighbor... Uh, he was raised by folks who were Seventh-day Adventists. He was an Orthodox heathen. And he was uh, standing in his front yard eating pork rinds one day. You know? Now, I, you know, I come from Texas stock. We love pork rinds. You know? So uh, uh, I reached over and took one of them and ate it. And he goes, you can't eat that. You're a Christian. And I go, yeah, I'm not a Jew. An Orthodox Jew. You know? He didn't understand the false teaching that he had learned as a child from the Seventh-day Adventists that he rejected, uh, he was trying to apply to me. You know, they do that. They look at you. They watch what you're doing. Probably wasn't the best reply, but nevertheless, (laughs) nevertheless, uh, nevertheless, it was it caught me so off guard. It just there's there you are. The point is, they observe you. 
And basically he's saying your life, what you do in life, should reflect your God so that ultimately he is glorified, Titus. Titus chapter 5, verse 8. This is a trustworthy saying, and concerning those things, I want to speak to you confidently so that those of you who have believed God will be intent to lead in, lead in good works. These things are good and profitable for man, but they also bring glory to God is the point here. And he is saying, he is saying as they observe you, even though they make all kinds of accusations about you, ultimately they're proved wrong is, is the idea here. Is that they are ultimately proved wrong. And then he says this text, these last words, he says, glorifying God in the day of visitation. And of this text, this is the one that gets the most ink because nobody agrees on what that means. Well, I know not nobody agrees, but there's three different views on what that means. Uh, And first of all, let me say this. In the English, it says the day of, of visitation. In Greek, it doesn't. There's no the. There's no definite article. In Greek, the definite article means a specific event, a specific thing. Like Jesus says, I am the way, the life, the truth. It means I am the one and only in in all of those contexts. Uh, Which, if the definite article was here, it would mean a very, very specific day. The one and only specific day. It's not there. This just means a day. A day of visitation. But that doesn't read well in English. So we, we, we cause confusion there. Uh, so understand that, first of all. So the first thing that you look at this, and probably I suspect many of you, the first thing that came to your mind was, it means a day of judgment. It probably doesn't. If you stop and you think about it for a minute, on the day of the great white throne judgment, do you think believers are going to glorify God for the good works they saw in believers when they're going when they're departing for hell? Probably not. It probably just doesn't fit. It's probably not a good good idea for this. Others try to put this in the context of court trials being stood before a magistrate, much like Paul, when he stood before uh, the Roman courts and before Felix and and so on and so forth, uh, that uh, his testimony uh, would lead to glory to God. It could be. That's within the realm of possibility. That's within the realm of possibility. But the majority opinion is that this is a this refers to a day of grace when one who is a non-believer watching believers and seeing what they do and how they live and how their life reacts to the world around them. It leads them to looking into and eventually accepting Christ as Savior, and it's the idea of, of, of expressing thankfulness, and it comes into play with Matthew 5.16. It says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And that's probably the correct way to see this verse as we go through this, because he's talking about 
a chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation who proclaims the excellency of him who calls called them, who were once not a people, but now are uh, people who who have ordered their lives and they stand ready for battle in the war of the soul. And as a result of that, that 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 reflection, no matter what the world has to say about Christians, it still serves as a testimony to draw people to Christ. And ultimately, God is glorified. I think that's where this text goes. Uh, There is a a position which we all hold as believers. And holding that position, we have a responsibility then under that position. one, One author wrote, with great privilege comes great responsibility. There is no greater privilege than being a son of God. There is no greater responsibility than being a son of God. Any comments or questions this morning? Okay. Next week we launch into a whole bunch of do this. (laughs) Let's close. Father God, we thank you this morning. We thank you for this text. We thank you for the Apostle Peter. We thank you for the Holy Spirit working through him to give us these words. And Father, we, we look and we, we're just amazed. I, I, I stand somewhat astonished at the position you have called us to. It seems almost daunting, but by your grace, you also gave us your spirit so that we might be able to, to live it. And Father, I would just ask for me and for this whole assembly and for this church as a whole that we would we would be a people who vocalize the excellencies of our God before a lost and dying world that they might see Jesus and that some of them might come to receive him and glorify our God with us. And we would thank you in his precious name. Amen.